When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hey, it's Matea Roach, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and a glimmer of hope that maybe for once international law might actually accomplish something. I never thought I'd see the day. In December of 2023, South Africa called a case at the International Court of Justice accusing Israel of having violated the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, commonly referred to as the Genocide Convention. On Friday, an initial decision was made by the ICJ that there is enough plausible evidence to merit further investigation into violations of the Convention by Israel. And as a result, the ICJ has passed provisional measures to prevent possible acts of genocide in Gaza, stopping short of ordering a ceasefire while the case works its way through the court. These provisional measures work kind of like how an injunction might work in domestic court in that they mandate that Israel take certain actions while this court proceeding is ongoing before a decision is reached. And it could take years before we see a ruling in this case. Now, Canada's position on this case has been particularly interesting. But our wholehearted support of the IGA and its processes does not mean uh, that we support the premise of uh, the case brought forward by South Africa. What this indicates to me is another instance of Canada's steadfast approach of just trying to stake out a position in the mushy middle on the topic of Israel and Palestine and trying to have their cake and eat it too. Like, for instance, Canada's explicitly stated position about Israel and Palestine is that they support the idea of a two-state solution. But how is it that they say they support the idea of a two-state solution and yet they don't really engage in any sort of serious way with a peace process in Israel and Palestine? And they don't even really support the concept of independent Palestinian statehood. They don't recognize the existence of any sort of government in Palestine that they could have a state-to-state relationship with in the way that we have a state-to-state relationship with Israel. But the most interesting piece to this case for me is something that I think has been missing from a lot of the general discourse. Like, could this case force a reckoning in Canada's relationship with Israel? Could this case result in Canada being found complicit in genocide, possibly? I got somewhat tired of having to bandy these questions around in my living room with the many men that I know with international relations degrees. And so I thought instead, why not talk to some experts who know somewhat more? Amanda Garimani is an international lawyer specializing in international criminal law, human rights, and corporate accountability. She's currently a research fellow at the Human Rights Center at the University of California, Berkeley. Farida Deef is the Canada Director at Human Rights Watch. And Mark Kirsten is a professor focusing on human rights law, international criminal law, and Canadian law at the University of the Fraser Valley. And what they had to say changed the way I think about this case entirely. 
Let's get into it. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Yeah, so thank you so much, everyone, for being here. I want to start off with Farida. So there's been a lot of news about this ICJ case that's come out just over the last couple of days with a ruling being announced on Friday saying that there were certain emergency measures to be taken by Israel. Run us through what some of these measures are. The International Court of Justice is the principal judicial organ of the UN system. On Friday, it delivered a landmark decision, essentially making clear to not only Israel, but also its allies, that immediate action is needed to prevent genocide and further atrocities against Palestinians. And the urgent measures that it adopted essentially do five things. They called on Israel to, number one, prevent and not commit any acts under the Genocide Convention. Number two, to prevent and punish incitement to genocide. Ensure the provision of humanitarian aid and basic needs to the Palestinians in Gaza. Prevent the destruction and ensure the preservation of evidence related to the case. And then finally, it called on Israel to report back on its progress with respect to the implementation of this order within one month. So fundamentally, urgent measures that would protect civilians, ensure compliance with international law, and seek to prevent further suffering. So one thing that I think some people who've maybe been following this a bit more casually perhaps have been confused by is there's been all of this talk about there's going to be a ruling on Friday, but no decision has been reached in this case. There hasn't been a declaration about whether or not genocide is occurring. This is a preliminary phase, and then this case is going to go on, possibly for a couple of years from what I understand. So Amanda, I guess, can you maybe sort of explain what phase the case has been in up till now and what the expectation is in terms of what's going to happen going forward? I think it's important for us to distinguish between two phases. The first phase of this case is South Africa's request for provisional measures, which is usually requested when there's urgency and they need the court to issue an interim judgment to preserve the rights of parties under the Genocide Convention until a final decision is made, which can take years, as you mentioned. So in this case, South Africa has asked the court to issue provisional measures. And because of the urgency of this request, since the violence is happening in real time, the court actually heard the arguments in this first phase of the case just a couple weeks ago and already issued its judgment on those provisional measures. So in this judgment, the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, didn't need to make a final determination about whether there is a genocide, but only whether the allegations of genocide are plausible and therefore warrant preliminary measures. So the court came out with its judgment and it had a very strong majority here and they recited the very undeniable facts from credible sources, including the United Nations, about the violence against Palestinians in Gaza, including the killings of thousands of people, uh, the injuries, the deprivation of food, water, fuel, medical supplies. And they issued provisional measures against Israel to stop 
this genocidal conduct, among other requirements. Now, the question is going to be about the enforcement and what's going to happen next. But in the meantime, the case is still actually open before the court for the second phase, which is when the court is actually going to hear the merits of the case. And this process can take years, and we haven't even gone to that phase yet. So the term genocide, I think, is is one that's been bandied about a lot in the time since October 7th, particularly by people criticizing the actions of the Israeli government in Gaza. But it's a term that does have a very specific legal definition as it relates to the Genocide Convention and as it relates to this case. I guess, can you maybe elaborate or clarify that a little bit? Sure. Under the Genocide Convention, essentially, genocide is defined as acts that are committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, an ethnic, racial, or religious group. And the International Court of Justice on Friday ruled that Palestinians in Gaza were one of those protected groups. Essentially, that the Genocide Convention does apply in this case, that the South African case should move forward. The issue really, you know, fundamentally, and something that's often complicated, is the issue of intent. The intent of states to destroy in part or in whole an entire group. And that's often one that requires a lot of a lot of deliberation uh, within the court systems. I'd like to just add that I think it's important to remember that the Genocide Convention itself, which is the instrument that defines genocide legally, is a diplomatic instrument that is a product of negotiations among states, including colonial states, who had an interest at the time of negotiating this treaty to actually narrow the scope of what genocide constitutes under international law. And they did that essentially to avoid implicating themselves in such conduct. And so I think it's important to also recognize that Canada is one of those states who actually push to remove cultural genocide as an example from the scope of the treaty because it was in fact in the process of committing cultural genocide at the same time. So the Genocide Convention, as it's written, is a flawed tool of international law. It doesn't fully encompass the breadth of what genocide is from a sociological or historical perspective. It's actually a very narrow legal definition, but it is the tool that we have available to us. And it's the tool that is being used currently to try to protect civilians across the world from from genocide. Amanda's exactly right. And so there's been an effort to kind of decolonize the very law of the Genocide Convention. And one of the things that we need to be careful of is people suggesting that genocide equates to mass murder. We, of course, have, you know, the imagery of mass murder from the Holocaust in particular, but also the Rwanda genocide. But if you look at the Genocide Convention, it includes other things. It includes, you know, putting people under the conditions where life basically can't exist or is extremely difficult to exist, again, with the intent to destroy that group in whole or in part. And if you look at something like what South Africa is alleging, yes, it's talking about the bombs and the bodies. But it's also talking about the structural conditions under which the people of Gaza have been placed. And that includes things like starvation and the denial of medicine, etc. And one of the very ways in which both in Canada as well as elsewhere genocide is denied is by continuously insisting that genocides only exist if you can point to a large pile of bodies. And that's absolutely incorrect. Genocide can be perpetrated and is perpetrated systematically and through structural violence. Well, and I think the other thing that's interesting to me, right, is colloquially we talk about the Genocide Convention. The full title of the Genocide Convention is the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. 
So I think there's this notion that we can only call something genocide once it's done and once there's sort of a total number of bodies that have piled up and once things have kind of reached this state of like just maximum horror and violence, when really this genocide convention and the ICJ, in theory, all of these organs exist as legal tools to prevent that escalation. So I think that sometimes when I see sort of in public discourse people talking about, well, you know, if it were genocide, it would look basically like this. And then they describe something that's like Rwanda, like the Holocaust. That's not even really within the limited framework of what the genocide convention is about. Like it is supposed to be about preventing things before they escalate to that point. One thing I guess that I want to highlight, and you all certainly know much more about this than I would, but I think one conversation that's also come up a lot is like people don't necessarily understand what the different organs of the UN are, what the different ways are in which international law can be applied against states versus against non-state actors. And so one question that's come up quite a lot, I've seen people asking like, well, why is it that Israel is having this case brought against them at the ICJ and there's no sort of recognition of the violence done by Hamas? But my understanding is that the ICJ exists as a body to arbitrate disputes between states. And so that might look like when states have entered into a bilateral treaty, that there's a dispute between them that needs to be arbitrated by somebody. But it also looks like when there's a dispute relating to a multilateral or like global sort of treaty like the Convention uh, on Genocide. The ICC would be the body, I guess, where if there were to be any sort of proceedings brought against individual members of the Israeli government, if there were to be any sort of proceeding related to the actions of Hamas on October 7th, my understanding is that it would have to go through that other body. Is that sort of like a fair assessment of what the difference between the two bodies is? I think that's correct. And I I would only just add, just to make that distinction clear, is that, you know, this case is different than a case before the International Criminal Court because it's not a criminal case and it's not a criminal trial. It's quite common for popular media to conflate the distinct roles between the International Court of Justice on one hand and the International Criminal Court on the other hand. So the International Court of Justice, which is known as the World Court, is a court for states to resolve disputes, as you mentioned, under international treaties amongst themselves. And it's a forum that essentially determines state responsibility for breaching international law. Now, on the other hand, the ICC is a court that is responsible for prosecuting individuals for committing international crimes. And these international crimes are also very specific crimes. They're genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and aggression. So the International Criminal Court looks at specific individuals, usually, as you mentioned, high-ranking members of government and military who are directly implicated in the commission of crimes. And that's very different than what we're seeing in this case, which is looking at the state. Yeah, I'll just jump in on that because I think, again, one of the ways in which there's been an attempt, including in the Canadian media, to deflect from the ICJ's case is to claim wrongly that the ICJ should look at Hamas's behavior, but it cannot look at Hamas's behavior. And I promise you, every single one of those judges at the ICJ is sympathetic to the view that Hamas should be prosecuted for international crimes. There's no doubt in my mind that every single judge on that court believes that that should be the case. But it can't address non-state actors like terrorist groups. And so when these people are proffering their you know, op-eds saying the ICJ is terrible for having looked at Israel's conduct and it should be looking at Hamas's, what they're not telling you is what you raised, Matea, which is the ICC can And the very same people writing these op-eds saying that the ICJ is illegitimate for looking at Israel and not Hamas do not support the International Criminal Court's investigation into Palestine, which is deplorable 
and leaves us with this outcome that so often is the outcome in this conversation is, well, maybe no one should be held accountable for these mass atrocities. And that's just un untenable. The one other thing that I wanted to say is Friday, uh, the 26th of January, when the ICJ did issue its interim orders, the judges stated clearly that they are demanding the unconditional release of the hostages from Hamas. They did not have standing to order that, but they said it anyways. And I think that was really important. They were quite sensitive to the fact that on October 7th, horrific atrocities happened, even though they can't address them because they don't have jurisdiction over the conduct of Hamas. Yeah, I really thank both of you for that clarification. I have the misfortune, I guess, to know a lot of people who did international relations degrees in school. And so this is the sort of thing that I have to like hear about all the time. But there has been this mass conflation, I would say, in media and even just the fact of like referring to it as Israel being prosecuted at the ICJ when it's not a criminal case, uh, when there is no prosecutor's office at the ICJ, I think has really muddied the waters in a way that's unfortunate. I want to talk more, though, specifically about this case that's moving through the ICJ and talk a little bit about what some of the precedents are as well, because I think, again, because of this conflation that's happened, I know a lot of people are probably thinking like when they think of any sort of international case at all, ICJ, ICC, like the stuff that comes to mind is, I suppose, cases involving Serbia and Bosnia, which there have been proceedings in the past uh, at the ICJ about that. But there's been a case between Ukraine and Russia at the ICJ recently, I understand, sort of one that was interesting to me in that it was another case of a state that was not being affected directly by genocide, bringing a case uh, relating to genocide, which there was the case of the Gambia versus Myanmar that was relating to the genocide of the Rohingya people in Myanmar. Where does this case that's going on between South Africa and Israel fit for you in terms of this lineage of precedent of previous cases relating to genocide at the ICJ? For me, what's interesting is that Somehow this case is being framed by some in the media as being an odd case, as being controversial or contentious. But actually, if we look at the case, it's, it's fairly clear cut. And we see some very clear precedents recently that can explain why and how we are here today. Perhaps most of the audience will be familiar with are the two cases that you just brought up because they happened so recently. We have the Gambia's case against Myanmar for genocide, and we also have Ukraine's case against Russia for a dispute under the convention. And both of these cases offer really interesting precedents that are relevant to South Africa's case. In the Gambia's case, as you referenced, the court determined that a third country, so a country that is not directly impacted by the allegations of genocide, can nevertheless bring a case under the Genocide Convention because the obligation not to commit genocide and to prevent and to punish genocide are owed to all of the parties of the convention. South Africa bringing a case against Israel, despite not necessarily being directly impacted by Israel's conduct, is not actually new and it's not controversial uh, and it's already been determined to be acceptable by the court. Now, in the Ukraine case, Ukraine requested provisional measures to suspend Russia's military operations until the case could be adjudicated. And the court did grant those preliminary measures. And you see again in this case that that's precisely what South Africa has done. Their argument is that we have an urgent situation here and we need to preserve the rights that are being adjudicated in this case. And so it's important for the court to issue provisional measures that are going to stop the killing and the violence that is contentious right now as potential genocide. 
And so it's interesting to compare, you know, the South Africa case with Ukraine's case, because in that instance, the court did issue provisional measures and they did use much stronger language against Russia to cease all military operations in Ukraine. They were unequivocal and quite broad in that statement. And they didn't use quite that same language in this case, but they did essentially order Israel to stop any conduct that could amount to genocide, which does in fact include its military operations. Yeah, just I mean, one of the things that's actually very interesting as well is that to see and to analyze Canada's engagement and approach with respect to the cases that Amanda mentioned, both the Myanmar case that Gambia brought forward and the the case against Russia that Ukraine brought. But even, you know, there there was a case at the at the ICJ fairly recently too against Syria for violating the Convention Against Torture. We saw in all of those cases very strong engagement by Canada supporting the case, filing declarations of intervention in the case, joining with other like-minded to do so. And there's a there's a real difference between Canada's approach here and with respect to Israel-Palestine, with respect to any UN mechanism of any kind seeking to scrutinize Israeli human rights abuses. So whether it's individual criminal responsibility at the ICC, which, you know, as Mark mentioned, would look at the actions of all parties to the conflict, or in the ICJ case that was brought by South Africa, you also see a very kind of convoluted, confused position on the part of Canada, where there's a sort of attempt in a way to to kind of appease both sides. And just to note, you know, in terms of the, the ICJ, The General Assembly in 2022 also requested that the International Court of Justice basically adopt a kind of advisory opinion on the legal consequences of the occupation, of the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. And South Africa, among other countries, even then, you know, filed a written statement, supported the proceedings, etc., Canada actually was one of the the few countries that said, actually, no, we don't think that uh, the International Court of Justice has jurisdiction here. We don't think that it should rule or provide any advisory opinion on the legal consequence of the occupation. All of that is to say that, you know, the, the ruling in terms of the provisional measures and moving forward in the case is going to require a very significant U-turn on the part of the Canadian government. And that, you know, obviously we're hoping they do because that's that's what they should do. They should support the process. They should ensure that Israel abides by the provisions and enforces them and complies with it and takes action in order to ensure that that happens. But the record here is 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 pretty bleak, I think. In some ways, I think Canada has to uh, pull a U-turn, obviously, in in a broader policy perspective. But on the other hand, like it could literally copy and paste what it submitted in its Myanmar submissions over genocide. And that would be helpful if it wanted to support South Africa's case, which I don't think it will. But the one thing I'd add specifically in relation to ICJ cases around genocide is, is kind of two points. One is going back to a point, Matea, that you made, that the full name of the convention is the convention on the prevention and punishment of genocide. And in that early Serbia case in 2007, the International Court of Justice looked at that and basically it said it would be nuts if the Genocide Convention's obligations were just to do something about genocide after it happened. The word prevention is not there by accident. It's there for a reason. 
where there is a serious risk that genocide may be taking place, all state parties to the genocide convention, and there's 153 of them, including South Africa and Israel and Canada, have an obligation to act to prevent that genocide. And they do not and should not wait for any legal determination that a genocide already exists, again, because that would be absurd. So there's two important facts about South Africa's submissions. One is that, yes, it is claiming that Israel is not abiding by the Genocide Convention, but it's also saying that South Africa itself is motivated by its own duty to prevent genocide because it sees a serious risk through the incitement of violence, the level of destruction, the starvation, etc., because that serious risk exists, it believes it has the obligation to do something about it, to prevent it. And what it's decided it has to do is to put this case forward. And I think that's really quite an important thing to remember, because that duty to prevent also applies to Canada. The other thing that I was going to say in relation to the Ukraine case is, as I think Amanda mentioned, is you know, provisional measures were issued by the International Court of Justice against Russia, which said you have to stop military operations. And we know that that didn't happen. That was back in, I think, March 2022. It didn't happen. Russia's continued to bomb and commit atrocities in Ukraine. In some ways, that has elevated the risks that Israel has of not complying with these orders. Because if Israel chooses not to comply with the five orders issued today, including giving you know humanitarian relief into Gaza, reporting on progress in doing so, prosecuting individuals who incite genocide and uh, violence against civilians, if it doesn't do that, and again, it's not enforceable, right? If it doesn't do that, then it's basically in the same camp as Vladimir Putin's Russia. And that's a political cost as opposed to a legal cost that I'm not sure Israel is w- willing to bear. So many good points being made by all three of you. One thing that's interesting to me, Farida pointed it out, like that this is sort of a rare case in which Canada is not supporting an ICJ proceeding relating to genocide or relating to the the example of Syria and Canada supporting the proceeding against Syria in relation to Syria's violations of the Convention on Torture. It's anomalous that Canada is sort of on the other side of this issue. I think that, you know, the myth of Canada as an international peace broker and as sort of like the world's peacekeepers definitely, at least for me, has crumbled a lot, I would say, over the last, like, I don't know, five years especially, but probably starting before that. But I do think that our government still likes to frame itself in that manner. And we like it's a, it's a more comforting way to think of ourselves on the international stage. I guess I'll turn to Farida first, but all of you feel free to jump in. Like, why do you think in this particular case and in other cases, as Frida mentioned, relating to Israel, Canada seems hesitant to really intervene in any way or to take any sort of strong stance condemning Israel's actions that are sort of that have parallels with some of these other cases that we've been describing? I mean, it's really been a longstanding problem, not only with, you know, the current liberal government, but successive Canadian governments. They are simply unwilling to critique Israeli human rights abuses. They're unwilling to engage with the reality on the ground in the West Bank and Gaza. They simply recycle the same tired talking points around a two-state solution, a long and lasting and just peace, without ever engaging with the reality of the ground, which, you know, Israeli human rights organizations, Palestinian human rights organizations, Amnesty and Human Rights Watch have called, uh, you know, basically apartheid and persecution. And yet it seems like every government is in a sort of paralysis 
you know, using their kind of longstanding position, the fact that they don't believe the state of Palestine exists, it kind of binds them into this whole where they then can't really engage effectively in accountability and justice efforts. Not only that, they sometimes actually actively obstruct those efforts. We've seen that at the ICC, Canada obstructing efforts to advance justice and accountability for all parties to the conflict. I mean, these are you know Israelis and Palestinian officials that that would be subject to the ICC's investigation because of this long-standing policy that's created a kind of holding pattern and paralysis. What we hope is that the decision by the International Court of Justice is a sort of you know moment where that's no longer possible, that you have to engage now with the reality because, in fact, you risk complicity. And you also have a duty, as Mark mentioned, to prevent acts of genocide, to ensure that those orders are are implemented effectively, not to do anything that would hinder the implementation of those orders, presumably including you know, selling arms to Israel. Israel has always been this sort of exceptional case. And unfortunately, the kind of impunity that northern states, particularly the West, have allowed Israel to have for for decades now has sort of resulted in what we see today. The fact that you brought up the notion of arms sales in Canada possibly being complicit is very interesting and something that I definitely wanted to touch on. So Human Rights Watch has said that Canada should suspend military assistance and arms sales to Israel so long as its forces commit widespread serious abuses amounting to war crimes against Palestinian civilians with impunity. So I I guess, Amanda, I want to turn to you here. Does the fact that Canada has engaged in arms sales to Israel and from what I understand is still possibly engaged in the sale of arms to Israel have any role in this case? Like what happens if Israel is eventually found to have been in violation of the Convention on Genocide? Are we then implicated? We don't even need to wait until a final judgment. The actual court case itself and the court's decision on provisional measures has already put other countries on notice about the plausibility that Israel's conduct could amount to genocide. And the reason that this is really important is because under international law, states have an obligation not to aid or assist the commission of an internationally wrongful act, of which genocide is one of them. And so if a state like Canada offers assistance, and this can include weapons and arms sales, but it could be other forms of assistance, to Israel with the knowledge that this support can be used to commit genocide, and they can't claim not to be aware anymore because an international court has just determined that genocide is possible, then they can now themselves be liable under international law. So the judgment is not only important for Israel and how Israel chooses to proceed, but also for Israel's political allies, including Canada. As Harita mentioned, Canada has taken a position. It has supported Israel. And if it continues to do so in the face of these mounting allegations and the plausibility of genocide, then Canada can also be responsible for that aid and support. And South Africa, in its response to the ICJ ruling on interim measures and provisional measures, actually said third states are now on notice of the existence of a serious risk of genocide against the Palestinian people in Gaza. They must therefore also act independently and immediately to prevent genocide by Israel and to ensure that they are not themselves in violation of the Genocide Convention, including by aiding or assisting in the commission of genocide. This necessarily imposes an obligation on all states to seize funding and facilitating Israel's military actions, which are plausibly genocidal. 
So just to reiterate that these states are now on notice. Just to say that it's both, you know, the arms that are sent to, you know, to Israel by Canada, which is quite small, I would say, compared to other countries. But the thing is, we have no real understanding of the amount of Canadian components, military components that go into U.S. weaponry that's then sent to Israel because there's really no clarity and no transparency around Canada's arms exports to the United States. And so it is very possible that Canadian goods, Canadian kind of components are being used in U.S. weaponry that then is sent to Israel. And Canada kind of consistently says that we have the most robust arms control regime in the world. That is on Global Affairs' website. The criteria here clearly is when you know we're determining whether or not to send arms to a country, the criteria is risk, risk of those arms being used to perpetrate human rights abuses. Here, the world's court, the you know the highest judicial body in the United Nations, has said that there is a risk. It is you know it is plausible that there's a plausible risk of genocide. So, really, it's right now is the time where we have to determine whether or not it is true that we have the most you know robust arms export regime in the world. You know, my my question would really be to global affairs, we have to prove it. If we don't prove it now, if we continue to sell arms to Israel, if we don't do an assessment of Canadian components and weaponry in U.S. arms that are being sent to Israel, then in a lot of ways, we're not doing everything that we can to ensure the implementation of those urgent provisional measures. I guess, though, what I wonder is that organs of the UN, in my mind, and as has been brought up by, by I think, all of you at different points during this conversation, don't always have the best track record in terms of actually successfully enforcing measures or provisions uh, that they request or that they say that states must follow, right? So the example that was given by, by all of you is that Russia recently ignored provisional measures on their genocide case with Ukraine. One of the measures was the cessation of military hostilities, and obviously that hasn't happened and the war in Ukraine is still on ongoing. So I guess what I wonder then is, you know, what are the enforcement mechanisms supposed to look like? My understanding is that uh, these provisional measures will be voted on by, I believe, the Security Council, although I could be wrong about that. At the UN Security Council, it's common practice and has basically always been the case that the U.S. will veto any sort of measure that at all would impose any kind of punishment on Israel that is critical of Israel. So I guess what I'm wondering is, like, there's this sort of political pressure that Israel doesn't want to be lumped in the same category as a state like Russia that is seen as, like, just summarily ignoring its international obligations. At the same time, Benjamin Netanyahu has basically come out and said that his government does not intend to follow these provisional orders. So what do you guys see happening in terms of the enforceability of these provisional measures going forward? I think the ones that were issued, Israel will have a lot less of a problem accepting. So I think, for example, the fact that it has to report once a month or so or in the next month on its progress, I think is something it will do because it'll see it as an opportunity to inform the court, but also to to share its narrative with the world as to what it's doing and to show that it's not genocidal. But sometimes I also think we get hung up a little bit on just enforcement or non-enforcement. This case has already impacted Israeli behavior on the ground. There was a bill introduced which basically said that people who were assumed or alleged to have participated in Hamas's violence on behalf of Hamas, or indeed were Hamas, would lose all due process rights in relation to legal representation. They could not get legal representation. They wouldn't get legal representation in a 
in their court cases. Now, that's not really about genocide, but the attorney general opposed that bill and said that one of the reasons she was imposing that bill was specifically because if it went forward, she thought it would weaken Israel's case in relation to genocide at the International Court of Justice. So sometimes we kind of get, I guess, hung up on this idea of like this high level provisional measures or orders and whether they're enforceable and what the United States will do. And you're absolutely right. The United States will unconditionally oppose anything that could ever be forced on Israel through any mechanism that's independent in international law. But behind the scenes, there are already these really important things happening and they will continue to happen because Israel whether it's through the ICJ orders or something else, has a very, very strong interest in making it absolutely clear that it is not committing genocide. And while it might not accept everything, it's going to act in a way to try and prove that to uh, the world. And that's singularly because of this case at the International Court of Justice. Yeah, and just to say as well that, I mean, the fact that Israel is even actively participating in the International Court of Justice proceedings is a sign in and of itself that it feels that it is bound by the court's orders and judgments and that any kind of flouting of this would be a stain on its reputation. Syria, for example, didn't participate. The Syrian government didn't participate in the ICJ proceedings around the Convention Against Torture. I just learned before this call that Algeria was elected to the Security Council, is going to seek a UN Security Council meeting based on these provisional measures. But as Mark said, I mean, the the risk of a US veto is very high and very likely. But there are other things that can happen as well. The UN General Assembly can reinforce the weight of the ICJ order on Israel by passing a resolution urging, uh, you know, the government to comply. Other UN bodies could also increase the power of this order, you know, take steps to do so, increase essentially the political cost for Israel of failing to comply. And certainly, I think one of the other very important outcomes, which the South African delegation noted, is the result of this decision in terms of the response and the actions of other states, of allies you know, who are now really put in a corner to do something and ensure that they do the right thing, they fall on the right side of history. So I think that in and of itself is important, whether or not, you know, Israel complies on the ground. And I think the case is unprecedented in a way where this is, you know, one of the few times where one of Canada's allies is before the International Court of Justice in a case with this level of importance. When we saw the cases with respect to to Syria or to, you know, against Russia on Myanmar, these were states that Canada already imposed targeted sanctions against, you know, didn't have any kind of arms deals with, etc. So they were already these sort of pariah states with respect to Canada. This is very different here. Israel is a state where Canada has an active, you know, trade deal with, sells weapons to, welcomes kind of military officials from, has very strong bilateral relations with. In fact, in a readout following a meeting between Foreign Minister Jolie and her new counterpart, Israel Katz, the Foreign Minister of Israel, she again kind of applauded this sort of 75-year anniversary of Canada-Israel bilateral relations, very strong people-to-people ties, etc. 
this is kind of unheard of. I can't imagine any other scenario where a country that is facing genocide at the International Court of Justice would be kind of acknowledged and applauded by Canada for its bilateral relationship. I mean, the timing of that is really just shocking. I was on Twitter. I, I woke up at you know three thirty a.m. to follow this live because I'm in Vancouver and you know whatever di- massive difference in time zone. And I immediately thought, oh, you know, these provisional measures will they go through? Will they not? And I completely lost sight of something, which is that a month ago it was impossible to even imagine that the World Court would announce that the case is plausible, that there's a plausible case to be had that genocide has been happening in Gaza. There's lots of ways in which I think this case is distracting from certain things. It is really important to find out whether this is genocide. These provisional measures matter. But in a sense, the provisional measures shouldn't distract us from the fact that the case is proceeding and there's a case to be heard. And also the question of whether there's genocide or not should not distract us from the fact that whatever you call it, the violence has to end. It's just deplorable. It's just too much. Too many kids have died. Too many people are at risk of starvation, etc., So I think we kind of got to remember to kind of see the forest for the trees here. And I think the key message is whatever anyone thinks, it's an incredible moment for international law that the situation in Gaza is now being, you know, dealt with by the International Court of Justice as a potential genocide. Amanda, Farida, Mark, thank you all so much for being here and for sharing your insights with us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thinking about events that have transpired in Gaza since October 7th, it's hard, I think, honestly, even from a distance, even being very removed from it personally, not being implicated in any way on either side to not get emotional thinking about it. The footage that has come out has been horrific. And I think that that's something that a lot of listeners probably can relate to. So the ICJ has just wrapped up the first phase of the case by implementing provisional measures. And since the announcement of the case in late December of last year, Canada basically hasn't changed its public position on the fact that this case is happening, like, at all. They essentially have been putting out versions of the same press release or press releases with the same vibe that Canada does still support the ICJ and its processes, but that this support does not mean that the government supports the premise of the case. Now, one of the provisional measures from this ICJ decision includes taking immediate and effective measures to ensure the provision of humanitarian assistance to civilians in Gaza which is particularly relevant in light of some recent news. So just after we recorded this conversation, Canada announced that it was joining the U.S. and a dozen or so other countries in suspending funding for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, UNRWA for short, after allegations that a dozen staff members at the agency had played a role in the Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th. So the sum of these cuts amounts to more than 50 percent of the UNRWA's funding. The UNRWA has said that they have terminated nine out of the 12 staff that were suspected of involvement in the attack. Uh, And for context, there are around 13,000 staff at the agency. The UNRWA has now said that they would not be able to continue operations in Gaza and across the region beyond the end of February if funding were not resumed. So this is something I definitely want to keep my eye on going forward. The humanitarian situation in Gaza and more broadly in the region, I think, is something that should be a paramount concern to everybody. 
Now, something that I'm still struck by more broadly in relation to this ICJ case is the symbolic power of the arguments that have been made by South Africa of stating that we all, you know, the 150 plus states that are parties to the Convention on Genocide, have an obligation to act to prevent genocide. Uh, And the fact that the lawyers representing South Africa, many of them are really the children of an apartheid state, uh, the children of sort of the first era of like a free South Africa who are coming to bring this case. If you think really, you know, back not that long ago, prior to the 90s, black South Africans did not have any sort of meaningful access to full civil rights to justice in their own state. The symbolic power of this, I think, is impossible to ignore for me. I think one thing that is really important to highlight is that, you know, this case is being brought by South Africa in part because Palestine is not recognized as a state at the UN. They have observer status. They can be a party to many sorts of UN bodies. Uh, The UN is, of course, very engaged in relief work in Palestine. But because the International Court of Justice is a body that really governs state to state relations, they don't have the ability to bring a case before the court if they feel that they are being subjected to genocide or being subjected to other, like, war crimes, really, whatever. That's something to consider in this case, that that is why it's being brought by another state. In terms of the conversation that we have with the panelists, I think that one thing that's been so interesting is just hearing all three panelists say that this is really a moment that I think puts Israel on notice, puts Canada and the United States and other countries that are aligned with Israel on notice. The line that we hear coming out of the government of Israel and of the Israeli defense forces so often is that they are the world's most moral army, that they follow international law to the letter, that they take it incredibly seriously. And I think that the fact that there has been sort of enough plausible evidence found in this case for this court proceeding to go forward and for more fact-finding to have to happen really challenges that sort of picture painting that they've been doing. And so what I really appreciated about what all of the panelists brought is this notion that, like, even if there's not total enforceability of the requests of the International Court of Justice. The fact that this is going to perhaps change the way that even internal Israeli civil society behaves is going to change the way that they conduct court proceedings on their own territory, actually giving, you know, say, political prisoners or Palestinians that are held in Israeli jails access to more civil rights because they know that the world is watching. That's massive. The fact that in Canada now, you know, it may not be as easy for the federal government to kind of say one thing when they want to look like the world defender of human rights, a an honest broker in peace negotiations, and then in practice, you know, sell weapons to Israel and play ball with whatever the right-wing government of the day is. I think that this is a really meaningful turning point, possibly, in changing Canada's relationship with Israel, that either we need to really seriously condemn the continual abuses of Palestinian human rights by Israel and just like the total campaign of devastation that they've been waging against civilian populations in Gaza, or like, you know, I guess, admit that maybe we're not the friendly neighborhood peacekeepers that we thought we were. I think that this is a moment where, at least for me, I think, and for a lot of people that I know, it's been a real turning point in terms of people getting really engaged on questions of foreign policy and starting to understand how connected it is to things that are happening here. Shit's not going to be the same after this, I really don't think. I don't think that Canada is going to really be able to continue having its cake and eating it too on this issue. Because in practice, being a staunch ally of the state of Israel, at least right now, implies complicity with the current status quo in Israel. And the current preferred position of the government in Israel is this notion of a one-state solution, one state between the river and the sea, where the self-determination of Palestinian people is totally out of the question, uh, where Palestinians do not have access to equal civil rights. If Canada does, in fact, support a two-state solution, which is the public position of the Canadian government and has been for a long time, then they need to address this contradiction that they are 
full-throatedly supporting a state that is totally in opposition to that goal. I don't think that supporting a two-state solution involves pulling back from humanitarian aid to Palestinians, and I don't think that it can possibly involve the unquestioning support of Israel in this current moment based on what the Israeli government is doing right now. All right, let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when it will be almost Valentine's Day. Will this be the year I finally get to live out my dream of being a professional wife guy? I'm going to quit podcasting to be a wife guy. Time will tell. Let us know what you've been pissed off about, what you're watching closely, and what you want to hear us discuss in the world of Canadian politics. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at candleland.com, and you can also DM us on Twitter at backbenchcast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me at Matea Roach on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Farida at Farida Dave on Twitter. You can find Amanda at Amanda Garhaman on Twitter. And you can find Mark at Mark Kirsten on Twitter. President Woodrow Wilson won the 1919 Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts to establish the League of Nations, which was the predecessor organization to the United Nations. Funny, because the United States never even bothered to join the League of Nations, and the League was kind of a flop. This episode was produced by Aviva Lassard and Noor Azria with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ejofo. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliese. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events. And more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.